questions about how an alleged hate crime is being handled grow louder. The invisible wounds, you know, the trauma behind this incident, it's very raw and very real. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We talk about the new solutions to adjust solar market rules. The solar industry is complaining about the same thing. We're complaining about the same thing. I think everyone would like to see this wrapped up. In-person performances and interactive art shows will fill the weekend calendar. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. The stabbing of a 16-year-old black girl in Lakeside earlier this month highlighted frustration around unchecked racism in East County. Here's community activist Tasha Williamson. We are not going to be protected by police or or FBI or the Attorney General uh, Civil Rights Unit or the DA's office until we are either severely injured or dead. So far, a 16-year-old white boy and a 15-year-old white girl have been charged with attempted murder and a hate crime. Joining me now with more is KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado. Kitty, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kitty, can you give us a recap of what happened since this took place? Well, since the incident, there was a town hall with the sheriff's department and representatives from the DA's office. And also there was an anti-hate rally in Lakeside and civil rights activists continue to call for more arrests. They allege other adults were among the group that confronted the family. And they say one of them is the father of the teen who stabbed the victim and more people should be held accountable. Do we know what condition the victim is in now? Is there any sense of how she's faring after all this? Well, as of last week, uh, when I did the story, she was out of the hospital, still healing, and had not been back to school because the family was in hiding and under protection. But I am being told that the stab wounds are healing, but the invisible wounds, you know, the trauma behind this incident, it's it's very raw and very real. And that's going to take a long time for her to heal from that. As we mentioned, a second teenager was arrested in connection with this case earlier this week. Why did it take so long to arrest the second suspect? 
Well, that's the question a lot of people have been asking. But on Friday, a teenage girl was arrested. She turned herself in. She's believed to be the girlfriend of the young man who stabbed uh, the victim. And she was questioned and released initially. But detectives said that she played a larger role uh, than they initially believed. And both of them were charged with attempted murder and a hate crime. But yeah, everyone was asking that question because... Witnesses told police, the family told police, the girlfriend was there, but the family has said that this young lady had a metal rod in her hand and went to hit the victim before she was stabbed a couple of times and the mom blocked uh, that hit and she, the mom was hurt. But in that whole thing that happened, that's when uh, the young lady was stabbed. This case is raising lots of legal questions. Let's talk through some of those. What constitutes a hate crime? Well, I'm no expert by by any means, but I did speak with an attorney who says that a hate crime is uh, something that is committed in whole or in part because of a person's perceived or actual disability, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, or in this case, race or ethnicity. How are hate crimes charged and sentenced? Well, a hate crime can be prosecuted as a misdemeanor or a felony and uh, also can be added as enhancements and it just increases someone's sentence. Why are people concerned about gang enhancement charges not being applied in this particular case? I was wondering the same thing. I'm not very well versed on the history of this area, but community advocates allege that in this case, the people behind the hate crime do have ties to white supremacist gangs. And the sheriff's department has not confirmed this. And the DA says they're still investigating and will hold everyone accountable who's responsible. But civil rights activists have been very clear. They say that when it comes to black or brown people, they often get charged with gang enhancements. And this never applies to people who have ties to white supremacist gangs. And that's the allegation here. And they say the arrest should have been much broader and the investigation should have been immediate. And let's talk about bystander laws. Why weren't others who were present arrested? Because the initial suspect's father was actually there. Well, the attorney I spoke with told me that bystander laws don't really apply in this case. And when I looked into it, it made sense why she said that. She said, you know, because in California, bystander laws apply more to people who, um, like a good Samaritan, who should be there to help someone in distress. But again, the attorney I spoke with says this has nothing to do with with bystander laws. This is more um, adults, you know, were there. They walked over with the teens, confronted the family, so they were more a part of it. And what about parental responsibility laws? Could the parents be held liable for the actions of the two minors who were arrested and charged? I spoke with two different attorneys about this. One told me that it's so rare that someone ever gets charged um, or held responsible for what their child or children did that DAs have a really hard time with this, mainly because they don't want to lose a case. They don't want to charge anyone that they don't feel confident that those charges will stick. But the other attorney I spoke with says these laws definitely apply in this case, and parents should be held accountable when their child does something violent like this, especially as it's alleged here that they were also participating. You've spoke with members of the Lakeside community following this attack. What's been their response to the way law enforcement is handling this? 
They're very upset in regards to the way law enforcement has handled this, and they added that uh, this seems to be the way they handle many incidents in this area or when it comes to black and brown people. They say it should have been handled differently. They should have acted sooner. More people should have been arrested. And uh, that the investigation, they say, was botched from the very beginning, and they are calling for the Department of Justice to investigate the Lakeside substation. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado. Kitty, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS video journalist Matt Bowler was on the scene in Lakeside this past Saturday as community members marched in protest of the alleged hate crime. A gallery of photos from the demonstration can be found online at kpbs.org. Change is coming to California's rooftop solar market, but when it arrives and what it will look like is a closely guarded secret. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says regulators are carving out a new solution to adjust solar market rules after the first plan landed with a thud. California is still waiting for a reboot of efforts to overhaul the state's solar power system three months after the governor essentially shut the process down. I'll say this about the plan. We still have some work to do. The January state budget news conference was really the only time that Gavin Newsom spoke publicly about the utility-friendly plan unveiled in December. That blueprint called for steep monthly connection fees and slashed the value of electricity residents sell back to the grid. Do I think uh, that changes need to be made? Yes, I do. But since then, crickets. It's all he's really said. Dave Rosenfeld works with the Solar Rights Alliance, a group pushing back against the first CPUC proposal. He warns that the plan would kill the state's popular and successful solar industry. It's remarkable. Something this popular, something this clear where the public is at. And then, you know, again, his primary surrogate at the CPUC, Alice Reynolds, has said also remarkably little. But Rosenfeld says the wall of silence has cracks. And he's concerned about what's leaking through. CPUC staffer Simon Baker told state lawmakers at the end of March that non-solar customers are paying billions of dollars to subsidize solar. These remarks came from Baker during a legislative hearing. I should clarify that there are um, other points that are on the record as well, and it is a, a disputed issue of fact. Disputed, but Baker only presented one side of the story. He echoed utility complaints that costs linked to rooftop solar are being shifted to non-solar customers. And Assemblymember Wendy Correa, in turn, echoed Baker's remarks and even read them into the legislative record. The cost shift in not addressing net energy metering, which hurts renters and uh, low-income families, would be at the tune of $6.7 billion if not addressed by 2030. Correct? based on what you just said. Yes, that's what I said. The Solar Rights Alliance's David Rosenfeld says Baker is spreading utility disinformation. The opposite is true, by the way. Rooftop solar users not only pay their fair share, but they actually reduce the cost of the electrical grid and saves all ratepayers money whether or not they have solar. Rosenfeld says rooftop solar does away with the need to build costly transmission lines to large solar farms in the backcountry. And power lines that don't get built won't start fires that can cost the state and utilities billions. Since January, the commission's meetings, which didn't even have solar on the agenda, 
were filled with hours of comments like these from Oakland's Area White. I totally oppose any kind of solar tax from rooftop solar, including fixed charges that discriminate against solar users. One meeting included seven hours of public comment, and the remarks were not one-sided. Union electrician Shamari Davis of Los Angeles shared his perspective. The commission should address the recent decision it made that will have non-rooftop solar customers paying into subsidies for others to install solar. The state's investor-owned utilities, including San Diego Gas and Electric, are staying quiet on the issue. SDG&E repeatedly declined a chance to be interviewed, but said in a statement they look forward to a CPUC decision. And that is something utility-funded groups like Affordable Energy for All agree with. Kathy Fairbanks says enough already. Legislators have been complaining about the lack of movement at the Public Utilities Commission. The solar industry is complaining about the same thing. We're complaining about the same thing. I think everyone would like to see this wrapped up. And we're, no one is certain when it will be or what the holdup is, when the changes will come. Nobody knows. When that decision comes, it could completely change California's solar landscape or only make minor adjustments. Regulators have to balance utility demands to stay profitable while at the same time growing the solar market so California can meet rigorous carbon reduction goals. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically. But our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcasts and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. For our Weekend Arts Preview, we have a new Broadway-bound musical, Botanical Designs at the San Diego Museum of Art, and plenty of live music. Joining me with all the details is KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. Bob Fosse's Dancing is a new musical at the Old Globe, and it's a reinvention of Fosse's original 1978 Broadway hit. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this one is actually also Broadway bound. The news came out last year that it was already nabbed by a producer. So after the Old Globe, it'll head to Broadway. And I saw it last night. I'm still kind of sorting out what I just saw, but it was for sure vibrant. And the dancing was definitely the point. So Wayne Salento, who is the director of this production, he actually starred in the original Broadway production as one of the dancers. And his reinvention, it was built on Fosse's original vision, which was to be revolutionary, to do what hadn't really been done before with dance on Broadway. 
and to do it in a kind of plotless way, but it still has characters that the audience can still care about. And there's a lot of adult themes. There's sensuality, which was something that Fosse really revolutionized in dance and Broadway. And there's also a lot of comedy. I really love the way vaudeville styles were paired up with contemporary jazz. And there's just a lot of athletic jumping and leaping. My favorite part was the start of the second act with Benny Goodman's Sing, Sing, Sing. The whole drum set was taken out of the pit and put on this tower on stage where the drummer played that familiar beat incessantly for a really long number. And of course, the dancing in that song was incredible. It was just a lot of joy. That's Bob Fosse's Dancing, and it'll be on stage at the Old Globe through May 29th before it heads to Broadway. So let's stay at Balboa Park for one more. Art Alive takes place at the San Diego Museum of Art beginning today through Sunday. For those who don't know what Art Alive is, can you fill us in and also tell us what you're excited to see this year? Yeah, so Art Alive features dozens, something like 70 floral installations around the museum. These are floral designs inspired by works of art that are on the museum's wall. So they're arrangements made in similar colors of a painting or shaped in the same way as the still life or the sculpture. And then they're placed by that work of art around the museum. And Every year, they also bring in a few installation artists to get some larger scale works. Usually one of them is in the rotunda, and this is usually another floral arrangement. But this year, they turn to Britton Neubacher, who's a local, and she works primarily with moss and preserved botanicals. So what she has created in the rotunda is this giant moss pyramid. Uh, It's covered in swirls and repeating patterns. There's also three giant moss-covered balls hung from the ceiling. They're on disco ball motors, so they spin around too. And I talked to Britton Neubacher this week while she was working on the installation. And part of the reason that she works with moss is for sustainability concerns from working with cut flowers. But she's also driven by the way moss is so chaotic. I love working with moss and it's messy and it's untamed and it's unpredictable and it doesn't play by the rules and it won't stay inside the lines and it's really chaotic in nature. So Britain's installation and all these floral designs, they're on view every day this weekend. There is an extra charge to get into the museum during Art Alive. Tickets are $40 a person, but it is free for members. There's also some family art making activities Saturday and Sunday afternoon, and you'll also have access to the brand new contemporary art exhibition. It's called Terra, and that just opened today. And then the Monet to Matisse exhibition. All right, that's all at the San Diego Museum of Art this weekend. And Saturday is Adams Avenue Unplugged, where musicians perform inside venues, bars, restaurants, cafes, and churches along Adams Ave all day. Um, Since there's more than 50 bands, can you give us some highlights and, and don't miss acts? Yeah, so this is sort of unlike the Adams Avenue Street Fairs where the bands perform on outdoor stages. This festival instead is almost like a love letter to the way that indie or jazz or acoustic acts play in these smaller, intimate venues. And maybe how we've all missed that over the last few years. 
It's along a two-mile stretch linking University Heights to Kensington, and most of these shows are free. We have the full schedule linked on our website, and I just wanted to try to hit a few different genres here. So the standouts for me, there's Louis Valenzuela's trio, Amy Jacobs, she's the singer of the pop band The Strawberry Moon, Clinton Davis, who's a bluegrass musician, Evan Diamond, who just won an SCMA for Best Pop Artist, Grandpa Drew, Julia Sage, there's multiple SDMA winner Sarah Petit, and then original folk and bluegrass band Whiskey and Burlap. We're listening to their single, Whiskey and Wine, and they will play at Swan Bar at 4 o'clock on Saturday. All right, you can find details on these and more arts events and sign up for Julia's weekly arts newsletter at kpbs.org slash arts. I've been speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thank you. Thank you, Jade. Have a good weekend. You too.